Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Well, again, good morning. We're glad you're here with us this morning. As some of you know, we've been examining our long-term vision for Gateway. Both our senior staff and our church council have been convicted that that God is calling us to focus on growing ourselves and those we encounter to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself told us to do this in terms of the Great Commission where he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We believe that as we grow As disciples of Jesus Christ, we're going to unleash a wave of God's love across our area that will change lives, that will build stronger marriages, that will help people find purpose and meaning in their lives, overcome hardships, and experience more meaningful relationships day by day. Frankly, God's love is the most powerful thing in the universe, and we intend to be agents of his love and grace as a church. As we learned in our MOVE study these last several weeks, we want to be doers of God's Word and not just hearers. Our experiences last week, all out serve, how many of you got out last week, all out serve? A bunch of you, yeah. It was amazing. A lot of good stuff happened. We've been, many of you have been serving in terms of eight days of hope, and we have been uh, hosting uh, ladies staying here this past week and for the, for the next week and, and RVs and, and uh, there have been thousands of people out in the community helping folks. Uh, it was so cool last week as I, I was out just seeing people and being so, they're being so grateful for what God is doing through all of this. And these are just examples of what an army of disciples of Jesus can do right here in our communities, in our neighborhoods and families, as well as around the world. And we're not going to be satisfied with anything less than God's best for, for you and for all people. And it begins with commitment to Jesus Christ to live then as his disciples who fulfill his commission to go and make more disciples. We've developed sort of a a working definition, if you will, of disciple as someone who follows Jesus, looks at what Jesus did, and seeks to imitate him. Now, notice that a disciple doesn't just observe what Jesus did, because sometimes that's our temptation, is just to, to watch, but to imitate him, to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. To be most effective for the sake of our mission and vision, we're, we're offering beginning next week in a class called Introduction to Discipleship. You've already heard about it this morning. We're going to be offering it four times next weekend on Saturday morning at 9 o'clock and Sunday morning at both the 9.30 and 11 o'clock hours and then at lunchtime immediately after that as a first time of about five weekends or six weekends, I don't remember exactly, over the course of this year. And we're doing that because... We want every single one of you, every single adult, every single student to go through this, to go through this one-hour intro. Even if you've been a disciple for a long time, we want you to take this class so you know how to join in with us in helping others grow as disciples. In other words, to understand what we're about. And if you're exploring Christianity, 
If this is something you're not sure about yet, this is a great way for you to gain a better understanding of what this faith journey is all about. We'll be following up the intro class with additional classes that go deeper as well as continuing our emphasis of involvement in life groups, in serving, and in worship. But in these two weeks leading up to Easter, I want to look at an aspect of what it means to be a disciple. And we're going to do that based on John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Um, I don't know if you ever looked, but the Gospel of John spends five chapters out of its 21 on Jesus' teachings on that last evening, on that, that Thursday before his crucifixion. So you know this has got to be some of his most important stuff that he's relating to us. So I want to invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 15 or use the YouVersion Bible app or if you have neither of those in the bulletin as a set of notes that you can pull out and use and follow along and, and do that. But before we jump into John 15, I want us to look at the setting. At the beginning of chapter 13, okay, so we're backing up a couple of chapters, the disciples have gathered in the upper room of a home to celebrate the Passover ritual. Now, this room here is actually in Jerusalem. Uh, it is one of a couple of sites that, that scholars think may in fact be the room. Now, this stuff is added, okay, this stuff wasn't there, but this may very well have been the actual room. Now, most of us, when we think of the Last Supper, we think of this next slide. This is the picture that we have from Leonardo da Vinci, all right? And, and it's one of those television pictures. You notice everybody's on one side of the table. How, how many of you are, sit at a long table and you all sit on the same side? All right? And, and it's a very famous picture, and it's a beautiful picture. The only problem with it is it's not how it would have been. The next picture shows us more likely what it would have been like. A, a U-shaped table, low, with cushions, and, and the disciples ringing it around, uh, leaning on it, and reaching for food. This would have been much, this is much more typical of what it probably was like. And, and as best we know, here over here are, are uh, John, Jesus, and uh, uh, Judas. Uh, at least some, some believe that they were in that configuration. So just kind of a, a, an FYI to kind of get a, a sense of where they are and, and what it is doing. And as a prelude to that meal, John tells us that Jesus took on the role of a servant and that he washed the feet of his disciples. They had been walking. It was a custom to help people feel refreshed, to clean their feet. And it was typically done by a servant of the household. And yet what we see here is that Jesus himself takes that role on, dons the, the towel of servanthood, and cleanses his, his disciples' feet. And he tells them in chapter 13, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also do just as I have done to you. In other words, he shows us serving is a part of who he is and what he's about. He demonstrated it by serving his followers, his disciples. And that's the picture of Jesus that he calls us to that we need to imitate as disciples of Jesus Christ, is that we serve those around us. And he began to remind them, and the essence of being a disciple is, is love. He said later in that chapter, a new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And, and Jesus continues in chapter 13 and into 14, and, and there's some incredible stuff in there. And we could take weeks just walking through all these, these verses, but we're not going to do that. We want to be in chapter 15 this week and next week. And so in the last verse of chapter 14, we see Jesus saying, rise, let us go from here. And as he says that, there, it gives us some indication that while we may think of chapters 13 to 17 as of all taking place in the upper room, this gives us some clue that it probably didn't. Now, we don't know exactly where the upper room is, but we believe it's in this area, and that room that I showed you is in that location. This is the Kidron Valley. Here is the temple. Here's the Garden of Gethsemane. Over this, this is a hill here that goes to Bethany and Bethpage and uh, Herod's Palace, the Tower of Antonia. But what happens is, is best we know, there's a couple of ways that they could have gone. They could have gone this route, as it's shown here, which would have taken them right in front of the temple, or they could have gone this route, which still would have taken them in front of the temple. And the reason I'm telling you that is because Jesus does something here. He kind of alludes to something in the first verse of chapter 15 that, that helps us understand why he says what he says. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, I mean, he's been talking about love and some other things, and suddenly he jumps to this image of the vine. And, and scholars have asked themselves, why did he choose this symbol at this point? And, and we honestly don't know. Let, let me just be clear. The scripture does not tell us. But as he would have been walking, they would have been walking past the temple. And here is a, a depiction. A, a, this is a, a scale model of what the temple would have been like. The temple grounds, uh, the temple itself, the courts. The fortress of Antony over here. Down here is the Kidron Valley, and if we come up this way, we would be headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is somewhere over here by these lights. Uh, so um, you see this, and they would have either come through here or down across here, but the temple would have stood out. It's the biggest structure in all of Jerusalem. And here's the thing. Let's go to the next picture. Josephus, who wrote about uh, a, a Jew who wrote about these times tells us there was on the front of the temple a vine. Now, we don't know if it looked exactly like this, um, but a vine with grapes. Uh, this is just a depiction. This is a best guess estimate. We don't have any, obviously, pictures or paintings from that day and time. But we do know that it stretched across the whole front and, and, and beyond of the temple. And it was very significant. It was a common symbol in the Old Testament of Israel and its prosperity. In Psalm 80, beginning in verse 8, it says, You, God, talking to God, brought a vine out of Egypt. Remember the Exodus? You drove out the nations, we jumped to Joshua, and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. And by the time of David and Solomon, it filled all of the promised land. Unfortunately, that's not the whole story in this psalm. 
Because the psalm in verse 16 says, they have burned it with fire. They've cut it down. Prophets such as Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel always showed this vine, Israel, as decadent and corrupt and under the judgment of God for failing to be obedient to him. What should have been this luxurious, valuable vine brought out of Egypt and planted by God himself, deeply loved by God, it was his people that he had chose, continues to produce bad fruit. The Apostle Paul helps us understand the kind of fruit God is always seeking. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But since Israel wasn't producing this kind of fruit, Jesus now says in this passage here in verse 1 that he is the true vine which was really a scandalous claim, that he himself is the true Israel, the new planting by the Lord. And he says this in a very really revealing way. He says, I am the true vine. Now, seven times in the Gospel of John, John quotes Jesus with these I am statements. I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and now the true vine. And it may sound to us like just a basic statement of, uh, uh, to, of us, of who he is, but to G- Jesus' Jewish listeners, they would have immediately heard much more because the word I am in, in the Hebrew language was the name that God claims for himself in Exodus chapter 3 in his meeting with Moses. It was understood by all Jews to be God's own personal name. I mean, we use lots of names for him. We call him God. We call him uh, uh, Lord uh, and, and all kinds of things. But, but I am or I am who I am or I am who I will be is the, is the name that God says is his, his, his name. And so each time Jesus uses it, he is stating that he, as God in the flesh, has these qualities. And, and now he's telling his disciples that he is the vine, the divine source for fruitful living for people who, who Jesus will say later in these verses are the branches. And God the Father, then, is the vine dresser who tends to the vine for the purpose that it would bear fruit. And part of that tending involves pruning. And, and there are two typical ways that grape vines were pruned, or any kind of vine, really, to bear more fruit. In early spring, the dead wood that couldn't bear fruit was cut away. Y- Yesterday morning, I'm in, my, in front of my garage, and we have a vine that runs over the front uh, top of our garage between the, the roof and the, and the thing. And I was going through there with clippers, and I'm cutting out dead wood. It doesn't, doesn't serve any purpose, so I'm cutting it out, and I'm throwing it in the trash. And, and that's part of pruning. From a very practical point of view, maybe think about it this way. At the beginning of the service, we dedicated a Three children, recognizing that every child is claimed by God as his very own. Yet the parents have a God-given responsibility to raise that child or those children in the church in order to learn about God and come to the point where they accept Jesus Christ into their own life as Savior and Lord. Parents can't give their faith to their child. They can't, it, it can't stand in for it. They have to nurture them on this journey, assisted by family, assisted by friends, assisted by the church. 
They are a branch, these children that have begun to grow. And in choosing faith in Jesus Christ, that person will then receive the Holy Spirit who helps them produce fruit, fruitful living, love, joy, peace, patience, so on. But those who never choose to put their faith in Christ cannot bear eternal fruit. And at some point, Jesus says here, he says in other places, there will be a day of reckoning before God the Father. In fact, Jesus says that the branch, in verse 6, he says the branch will be taken away and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So those of us who are parents, and, and we together as the church, have a huge responsibility to do all that we can to help our children grow into healthy branches that bear fruit because the consequences are literally eternal. But there's a second way in time that branches were pruned. In late summer, after the blossoms had, be- had become ripening grapes, there, there would be little, s- s- we, we always call them sucker shoots, you know, that would come off the main branch that would, that after the grapes are already beginning to form, more growth would start to come off the, the vines. And those had to be cut away so that the main fruit-bearing branches would get the, the, the bulk of the nourishment and the bulk of the, the, the vitality to produce the best grapes. Otherwise, some of the energy of the vine is pushed out into those sucker branches that aren't going to produce any grapes, that aren't going to produce any fruit. Jesus says every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now the word prunes here in the original Greek language is kathario, and and it literally means to make clean. Imagine making clean the branch. So pruning has two focuses in our lives. There is the sense here of moral purification, and anything that goes against God's commandments and laws needs to go. It makes us impure and has to be pruned. But at the same time, things that aren't helpful, or at least aren't the best, are also pruned away so that only the best fruit can grow. God calls us to to seek and follow his his will because this is the best fruit. And, And here's the thing, guys. We can do lots of good things But if we are choosing things that pull us away from God and his best, God will seek to prune those things away. You see, God's plans for you and me aren't how much money you make or or even where you live or what, what job ultimately, but what do you do with the life he has entrusted to you in order to make an eternal difference in this world? We were bought for a price. We're not here for our own sake. We're here for the sake of the kingdom of God. And anything that gets in the way of our time with God, of worshiping him, of gathering together as a community of faith, of serving him, of sharing his good news with others may be a good thing, but it's not God's best for you or for the world around you. And that's a huge danger for you and me today. 
to become distracted by the things of this world and, and, and lose track of the things of God. And, and there's nothing Satan loves more than distracting us from the best with good. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy the things of this world. God created them after all. I mean, it's not that, that those good things are bad or wrong inherently, but it means that they are no substitute for God himself. And so God may seek to prune even good things out of your life and mine to make room for his best. But there's another side to the pruning. And it's a little bit harder to swallow. And that is that sometimes God allows hardships and adversity into our lives even when we ask him to take those things away. And most of us will admit that some of the hard experiences that we've gone through in our lives have actually been times when we did grow more, when we did lean on God more, when we did trust him more. I was talking to Riley Futiker this morning, and, and he had been out to some vineyards one time, and he said that those vineyards that are planted in the, the, those areas that are kind of marginal on the edge of having the best um, uh, rain and all, where the, the fruit has to struggle a little more, he said those tend to be, the, he, he was told, they tend to be the better grapes. And, and, and we got to remember, God's purpose is not to take away all our problems. Now, I will confess, I have prayed that many times. God, take this away. I'm, I don't want to deal with this. I don't like this. But all of us have to remember that his purpose is not our happiness, but our holiness, to conform us increasingly into the image and likeness of his son, Jesus Christ, to lead us to imitate him in our daily lives. And there's no question that Jesus went through adversity. He, he suffered. He, he, he's speaking these words to his disciples on the very night that he is going to be betrayed, and with ours he will be flogged, crucified, and dead. So no one is saying that pruning is fun, or at least always fun. But Jesus says it is crucial to becoming good branches that aren't cut away, but that in fact bear more fruit. Remember what James told us in our series move. He said in James chapter 1 verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Hebrews 12, 11 says, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. I mean, pruning is God's gracious way of channeling his spiritual power into our lives so that his plan, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus tells us we must, what we must do to allow God to work in us to become that good fruit. He tells us in verse 4, he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch 
cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, and neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, five times in those verses and ten times in the first 11 verses in this chapter, Jesus tells us to abide, or some of your translations say, remain in. And and abide maybe seems like an old-fashioned word, but it means to remain, to stay put, to linger in one place, to dwell. And that's the central focus of what Jesus is trying to tell us in this passage, that to be the person God created you and me to be, to fulfill his will in our lives, to be his disciple and therefore imitate him, we have to abide in him as he abides in us. This this mutual indwelling of of Christ in us and, and us in him is central to what it means to be a Christian and a disciple of Jesus. For a branch to bear fruit, it must share the life of the vine. In the same way, for believers to bear fruit, they must abide, they must remain in Jesus. The Apostle Paul talked about this relationship in a little different language using the terms of spiritual death and resurrection. He says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But it's important for us to understand that what all this is not saying is that it's simply about trying harder, that it's just about my efforts. Jesus makes it clear that we can't on our own produce any lasting fruit. What he means by that, he means fruit that has eternal implications, that, that changes the world. Abide in me is the only command in this passage, but it's also an invitation. Are we depending on Christ, not just on Sunday mornings? But each day, all throughout our day, are we talking with him? Are we having a running conversation? Are we sharing with him? What's going on in our lives? Are we seeking his truth? Are we trusting his word? Jesus said already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The word for clean in the original Greek language that this was written is very similar to the Greek word for prunes, showing us that one of the main ways we are cleaned and pruned is by the Word of God. God's Word inspired by the Holy Spirit and, 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 and then inspiring our reading of His Word and our living of it allows the life-giving power of Christ to live in us and through us. And I, I, I'll just tell you, I will never stop encouraging all of us to spend time every day in God's Word. Not because I say so, because Jesus tells us that there's something about that abiding. You know, I used to hear people talk about when you look at an older couple who'd been married 50 years or 60 years, you'd look at them and think, you know, they kind of they are starting to look alike. They're kind of taking on the practices or the habits or the expressions of each other. 
Why? Did, did they intentionally say, did the, did the wife say, I want, to, I want to look like my husband? Or did the husband say, I want to act just like my wife? I, I, but over time, as you abide with one another, as you spend time, as you live life together, God brings change. God brings transformation. God helps us become increasingly like that with whom we spend time with. And that's how we allow him to help us, one of the ways, imitate Jesus as his disciples. And in so doing, our prayers are transformed to reflect God's will, not what I want. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And that doesn't mean ask whatever you want, because the key thing he says here is to abide. If we are abiding, it leads us to desire his will above all. And God will then work through us when we ask for that. But notice that what we ask is always in this context of abiding in Christ and his word. Jesus came to be Savior and Lord of our lives. And if we're not abiding in him, it's, it's very hard for that to happen. We get distracted. We go in lots of different directions. We get drawn to the good things instead of the best. John Eldridge, in his book, Sacred Romance, I found this this week, it just, to me it was just such a telling question. He said, if I'm not abiding in Jesus, then where is it that I abide? If I'm not abiding in Jesus, then where? I'm abiding somewhere. Where? Disciples abide in Jesus. And from that comes transformed lives, abundant life, purpose. I read this week a story about a woman named Marge who had an experience aboard a plane bound for Cleveland that was on the tarmac getting ready to take off. And as she settled into her seat, I don't know if you've ever done this, I've seen this a couple of times, she noticed a very strange phenomenon. You look out the far side of the seat, the far side, the other side of the aisle, and, and the, there's a sunset, and it's just filling the entire sky with all this beautiful color. But on her side of the, of the, of the aisle, as she looked out her window, all she could see was a, a darkening sky that looked threatening. There was no sun or sunset, sign of the sunset. And she said as the plane's engines began to roar, she said a, a gentle voice just seemed to well up within her and speak these words to her, and I'm going to quote her. You have noticed the windows. Your life, too, will contain some happy, beautiful times, but also some dark shadows. Here's a lesson I want to teach you to save you much heartache and allow you to abide in me with continual peace and joy. You see, it doesn't matter which window you look through. The plane is still going to Cleveland. So it is in your life. You have a choice. You can dwell on the gloomy picture or you can focus on the bright things and leave the dark ominous situations to me. I alone can handle them anyway. And the final destination is not influenced by what you see or feel along the way. Learn this, act on it, and you will be released, able to experience the peace that passes understanding. That's why we're emphasizing discipleship. Because we want you to experience God's best. And it's why 
I want you to attend one of these introduction to discipleship classes as a starting point in our journey as a church to increasingly imitate Jesus, to be the body of Christ, not just here on Sunday mornings, but out in the world. It doesn't mean just gathering in holy huddles. Because really, abiding is not the ultimate goal. Our transformation into the image and likeness of Jesus is to then go and love God and our neighbors and make disciples for Jesus. And as we'll see next week, that requires us to produce fruit. And Jesus makes it clear what that fruit is as we continue in this John 15 passage. If anything we've talked about this morning, you need to talk with someone. Our prayer team will be down here. And they would love to just listen to you or talk with you or pray over you. It doesn't have to be about discipleship. Um, if you're in need of prayer, they, they would love to do that. And we have a whole prayer team that loves to pray. Um, you can sign up for these classes. Go online to the Find It page on our website or go out to the Next Steps area and there's folks waiting for you. Don't forget your Easter invitations. And, um, and I, we have our uh, brain injury support group is, has a table set out in the lobby and they would love to share with you if you want to learn about that. They're there to do that. If you're a guest with us today, uh, myself and some friends will be out this door, and we'd love to say hello to you. If you brought some guests, please bring them by. We'd love to, to meet them. You know, remember Easter? <laughs> this is scary. I mean, we're coming off of many of us spring break. Easter's only two weeks away. <laughs> I mean, two weeks from today. From today. And, and we have a lot to do to get ready because we have the best news ever. We have hope that rose on Easter to share with the world. And there is no human being that doesn't need hope. And this is the hope that lasts. This is eternal hope. And we want to share that good news. So I hope that you will be an instrument of God's grace uh, his hands and feet, his voice as a disciple of Jesus and help share that good news and invite people to join us. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Father God, thank you for your grace, your amazing grace that claims us for who we are but challenges us never to stay. It challenges us never to be content with what we have. The challenges us not to settle for good but points us always to your best. Father, for some of us, we may be in a season of pruning, and it's not necessarily fun. Others of us, Father, know we've kind of gotten overgrown, and we're not being as productive. We're not bearing the fruit, and we need pruning. And I pray you would give us the courage to ask God to help us in that area, to help each one of us be pruned, that we might abide in you as you and us, that we would produce much fruit, fruit that has eternal implications, fruit that will last forever. Thank you that you've allowed us, that you've cared for us, that you walk with us in this journey. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.